Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from EPAM Continuum. There are few human situations quite as dramatic as a difficult-to-diagnose patient. There's the uncertainty, the vulnerability, the detective story ingenuity required to nail down a series of symptoms. I mean, consider the fact that the TV series House MD ran for eight seasons and 177 episodes. You might know that show, but the chances are you don't know the medical mind behind it. Well, that person happens to be Lisa Sanders, the famed doctor and author who inspired the beloved Hugh Laurie program, has long written the New York Times diagnosis column, and now hosts the Netflix documentary series of the same name. Lisa recently stopped by our Boston studio for a consult with Jonathan Swersey, Director Innovation Consulting and Vertical Lead Healthcare. During their discussion, they talked about how social media has opened up diagnosis to the wisdom of the crowd, how showing an interest in patients is more important than a glitchy Skype connection, how shooting patients in the face with the diagnostic shotgun is a problem, and how limited genetic testing's role currently is in diagnosis. At the end of the day, diagnosis is an enormous topic and one that will fascinate us all, doctors, patients, readers, and viewers, for years to come. As Lisa Sanders puts it, until we have Bones McCoy's tricorder, we're going to miss diagnoses. I really want to start talking about, about your work and, and how you see the world. Um, and so I know you've been writing about diagnosis for a while. I think you've had the column since, is it 2002 or so? Yeah. And so, um, you know, know, obviously know the connection to the TV show House, um, something that, that I personally loved when it was on the air. I think Hugh Laurie's brilliant. But I, I often wonder, like, what are the effects of dramatizing this idea of medical diagnosis, right, in that, in that context? Um, what in, what in, what impact has that had on patients or fellow doctors or as, as you think about it? Well, you know, it's not like doctors didn't know that there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding diagnosis, but it was not a story, I think, that doctors felt comfortable sharing with patients. Mm. And yet it's really fascinating. And most people are not the subject of, um, of a diagnostic mystery. Yep. But when they are, you know, it's good for them to know that that happens. Yes. You know, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not, you know, it's not unusual. Yes. So I thought it was a story worth, worth sharing. Um, and so I think it's been important. I know that patients, possibly because of my column, certainly yeah. helped by Hugh Laurie, yeah. Um, understand now that um, diagnosis is a process, which is something I really wanted. I wanted people to know. I wanted people to see, in part because I think it's extremely interesting and actually kind of cool that uh, this sort of detective story unfolds. But also because I think it's important that patients know that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, even with routine diagnoses. Yeah. You know, what we don't say to patients is, you have the flu, probably. Right, that's you right, know? that's right. Um, you know, I, we could do a swab and find out whether you actually have the flu, but that's not usually necessary. I mean, we don't usually do that. We usually say, well, this is back pain, you know, take it easy, take yep. some ibuprofen, go to physical therapy. You yep. know, we think probably this is not a tumor in your spine. Yep, yep. Right, but we don't, we don't express our uncertainty about that. And it's important that I think patients understand that there's around every diagnosis, there's yeah. uncertainty. Yeah. And how do you feel that patients you know, are receptive to that? 
right, to that notion of uncertainty, because I think, you know, historically there's, you know, historically in medicine, right, it was a very paternalistic practice. You went to the doctor for an answer, right? It was a definitive, um, a definitive answer to, to, to what was bothering you, and then hopefully a treatment for that. Um, how, how have patients responded to that, do you think? Well, I think you don't have to be a genius to realize that doctors are not gods, yep. uh, no matter what their mother told them. Um, and I don't think it's as surprising to patients as doctors thought it would be. Perhaps mm. that's bad news for doctors. Yep. I also think it's part of the openness of medicine now. Medicine used to be a pretty closed circuit. Mm. You could be white and you could be male, and that yep. was about the range yep. from here to white to male yeah. is right, where. That's it. So, you know, the um, introduction or the allowing allowing people who are different, like me, I'm a woman, yep. people of color, you yep. know, people of different orientations, I think that's had a tremendous impact on, on uh, how doctors portray themselves mm. and how doctors are seen. Mm. Inter interesting. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've always found most reassuring is when a doctor, you know, says, I'm not really sure, but I'll find out. Right. And it's those two things together. Um, I don't exactly know what this is, but we're going to find out. And that is really, it's really comforting. Right. Um, especially with younger doctors who are, who may be in training or, 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 or something like that as an example. Um, so I want to just talk a little bit. Um, the column, of course, has been turned into the, the series on Netflix, right? and it opens with this with this disclaimer card. Right, the following series is designed to entertain and and, and inform, um, not to provide medical advice. You should always consult your doctor when it comes to your personal health or before you start any treatment. So when you see those words, how how do you how do you feel? How does that how does that make you react? Well, you know. People used to ask me about House. Yeah. What if medical students see House and think that's the way doctors are supposed to behave? Mm. And, you know, my answer then is a little bit my answer now. Anybody who believes what they see on television should be drummed out of the core anyway. Yep. Like, yep. nobody believes what they see on television as advice about what they personally should do. Yep. I don't think. Okay. But you know, it's the lawyerfication, the lawyer, the lawyerfication, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's you know everybody's always worried about somebody doing something. It's why you know lit ladders have labels that say "careful, this is used yes. to you could fall from a high, you know, from yeah. a height yeah. down to the floor. So be careful." Yeah, that's right. And you get like even wrapping of toys right inside the plastic says "do not put over your head." Um, so we've sort of replaced some common sense with uh, with crutches for for people in some instances. I don't think we've actually replaced the common sense. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think it's still there mostly. Yep. 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 Uh, augmented. Well, we're just making ourselves feel better. Yep. I mean, we do a lot of things. We do a lot of things in medicine. We do a lot of things in life mm -hmm. that don't help the patient, but make us feel a lot better. I interesting. Tell tell me more about that. If somebody has something wrong and you treat it yeah there's this drive to test retest to make sure that whatever abnormality you're treating actually got better hmm. it's not helping the patient right you know but it makes me feel better 
Interesting. So we do that a lot. Oh. You know, I mean, and you know, it's important that doctors feel better too. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> and it's actually something that, that we at EPM Continuum talk a lot about, right? So we talk about this, this intersection of needs, right? There's the functional need, which is, you know, maybe to deliver care, but there's also this, this really rich set of emotional needs, right? That, that physicians have, right? That nurses have, that the techs have, that, that the patients and the caregivers have that are all around that care, right? So if it's the doctor, you know, maybe that they want to feel, you know, like they're providing good care, right? That they want to feel maybe accomplished, um, you know, among the peers that they got the right treatment for the patient. Um, I'm sure that's some of, some of what you're alluding to. Yep, our own needs. But, you know, I mean, and in medicine, we're not supposed to acknowledge those needs or act yeah. on them, but yeah. we do. How can you not? Well, right? <laughs> I think we, we probably, well... I think we should only do it sometimes, you know. I mean, yeah. our needs are not... I mean, the whole thing about medicine, yeah. and I think one of the real pleasures of medicine is it's not about me, it's about you. Yeah. And, you know, there's so few ways to escape your own needs, yeah. your own wants, your own desires, and yeah. you walk into that exam room, and suddenly it's just not about you. Yeah. It's about you thinking about, what can I do for this other person? Yeah. And that's kind of a relief to me. Hmm. It's like a vacation. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think that that is um, uniquely you, right? Or do you think that that notion of it's about the other person is pervasive it, you know, among practitioners, right? Among physicians. I assume that it's everybody. Yeah. Because I don't feel that special. Yeah. So, um, and, and I, I think it's a relief to residents to yep. know, you know, I mean, I do a lot. I teach residents a lot in the outpatient <laughs> setting and in sure. the inpatient setting. And I spend a lot of time talking about the, the doctor role. I mean, there's a reason it's called the doctor role. It's, yep. it's a part we play. It's not us. Yep. If it was really us, then, then we would be talking about ourselves because that's what that's right. we mostly talk about. That's right. Um, yep. But it's not. It's, it's the doctor we aspire to be. That's the role that we're playing. And, and that aspiration, is that something that evolves and stay with, stays with you over your career? Um, is it ever achievable? Well, I certainly hope so. I hope I'm that doctor, yeah. at least most of the time. I mean, nobody's yeah. perfect. Everybody yeah, sure. has bad days. And um, I, have, I do have a patient who still comes to see me. I don't know why, God. Hmm. And she, <laughs> she told me that she had this problem, which to me sounded psychiatric. Mm. Um, and um, I said, well, show me. Mm. And I didn't know she was wearing a wig, but mm. she took off her wig, and I could see what she'd been telling me about. And I was so surprised, I burst out laughing. Oh, wow. Wow. Because, because I was I was not expecting to see something real. I was expecting to see something psychiatric. Right, right. And I don't know why I laughed, mm. but I was just surprised. Wow. And I, I could see immediately that I hurt her feelings. And of course, you know, I mean, you know, she cares enough to wear a wig to hide this problem that she has. Sure. Um. And I immediately apologized and um, tried to move past it. And she, 
I don't know how. She was somehow able to forgive me, wow. and she's still my patient, and, and thank God. But, um, you know, so we're not always the doctor we aspire to be. Yep. But I, I try. <laughs> I try. Yeah. Well, yeah I think um, almost in any profession, right, you could say that we all aspire to be the best we can every day. I am not the best I can be every day. I try. I, I get up every morning and I go out, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Um, and sometimes we all make mistakes, right? And I think um, that kind of thing it makes you more human. Maybe it makes you more accessible, um, potentially in her eyes. I don't. I don't know. Um, you know, it's 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 really interesting to think about. Um, in the in the series, the Netflix series, yeah, social media is a component of of, of how. You know, people are engaged ar- around finding the, the, the diagnosis for the, for the patient that's presenting. Um, and so that's, you know, whether it was for Angel and the CPT deficiency, um, Sadie, um, with, you know, with, with maybe it's, you know, I sort of left that with maybe it's a variant of Rasmussen's or not a fully appreciated, you know, outcome for, 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 for what that was. Um, and that one actually touched me closely because my, my younger daughter's named Sadie. So it sort of it makes it very personal in some ways. But can you talk about that experience of sort of social diagnosis and, and having that as a, as a channel that, that, that's, that's shared um, and used as part of your, your process? Well, this all grew out of a desire I had to help people experience what it feels like to make a diagnosis, you know, because that sort of, satisfaction of having the pieces come together in a way that's meaningful is really wonderful. And um, in a column that I used to write, which is the real origin of diagnosis, this column was called Think Like a Doctor. Mm. <clears throat> and I would present a patient who had a diagnosis, but I would present them up until the point before the diagnosis was made and stop and say, what do you think this is? And it was it was mind-blowing to me how much care and thought people would put into this. I mean, I would attach to the column, you know, 10 pages of patient records all de-identified. And people would read them more closely than I would because, of course, when I saw them, I saw them, I knew what the diagnosis was. And so I only looked at the things that I was interested in because I already knew the diagnosis. But people would point out things that I didn't see because... I didn't look that closely, and it just reminded me how much effort and work and interest people have in other people when they're given the opportunity. Um, And so seeing, so that's what we were drawing on in the show diagnosis, and it was just fantastic. I mean, not everybody was lovely. Yeah. Um, That's just that's just the nature of humanity. It is. But most people, the vast majority of people who <clears throat> wrote in or called in or Skyped, they were they they wanted something good for the patient. Mm. They were trying to offer something good. I think even the people who were kind of mean <laughs> were giving their version of tough love, you know, that this is, you know, this is how you have to deal with this kind of patient. And uh, I thought it was a beautiful example of the generosity that we can have towards other people. Mm. And I loved that. Um, And I also thought it showed people's willingness to engage with data that they may not know. I mean, Mm. my hope in crowdsourcing a diagnosis is that we know that um, the person 
most, the doctor most likely to make a diagnosis is the doctor who's seen this before. Hmm. But it's not just doctors who have seen diseases before. You know, other people, other caregivers, friends, aunts, nephews, hmm. you know, we've all ha experienced somebody's disease, you know, as a witness. And so I thought those were people who had actually seen it before. Um, mm. And there might be more of them than there are doctors in the world who had seen it before. So I thought this was an opportunity for them to connect with that kind of knowledge also. Mm. Um, uh, but also, uh, you know, people's willingness to use the Internet. Mm. One of the things that I was reminded of, of course, was how different a disease can look mm. on the page when compared to the patient in the bed. I mean, you're looking at the words, you're reading the symptoms, and you think they're the same, but to a doctor who's had any experience, you recognize, oh, the, the, the rage or the, you know, the seriousness, the severity, the chronicity, you know, there's so many things about that description that don't fit this patient. Mm. But I loved people's willingness to just go there say, I'm going to try and figure this out. And I love that. Hmm. It's a, it sounds like such a great way to engage with a, with a broader community, right? Especially when you're dealing with things that really are atypical, right? That things that are out of the ordinary where you would, you know, where you would be drawn in. Um, I, I had one of my colleagues wanted, had a question. I thought it was, it was just, just about the interface, right? Like when you use Skype to engage with a patient, how do you build the same kind of rapport that you might if they were in the exam room, right? Um, or is that necessary? Like, what does that, that interface mean for you? Patients, especially after they've dealt with the medical community for a long time, are just grateful that somebody is actually seeing them. Hmm. Um, and they can feel engagement, even if it's through Skype. I think that that, you know, I'm, I was honestly interested in what was going on with them, not only because I love these stories, and these are the stories that I've, you know, spent my time in medicine thinking about and looking into and writing about, but also in order for me to write a story about them, which was what I was doing, I had to know all these things, and uh, I'm actually interested. I mean, I think the best way to get people to talk to you mm. is to be actually interested in what they have to say um, and be able to demonstrate that by being quiet and listening to what they have to say and not um, there's a very human desire when somebody tells you to store a story to match that story with one of your own hmm. to indicate oh yeah I totally know hmm. <clears throat> that's not a great interview technique hmm. you know yeah right because because like with it being a like it's part of the doctor role. It's not about me. It's about you. Mm. Although I say that, and yet there was a uh, a study that was done uh, ten years ago, where uh, the the sort of light conversation that doctors have with patients before you say, you know we're all instructed to have like when somebody comes in, oh how was the traffic or how's the weather, you know just mm. something to, to put people at ease. Yeah. And I always go with, the, you know, how was the traffic? How was, you know, how was yeah, parking? Sure, sure. But the most common thing was, I just played golf yesterday. And, you know, yeah, yeah. a story about the doctor themselves and yeah. not about the patient. Yeah. 
So well, I was surprised. I mean, I didn't think that that would be the most likely kind of chat hmm. to have with a patient, yeah, but sure. apparently that is the most likely, but better not be with any of my graduates. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could bring them back for remedial coursework um, or, or, or maybe an extra residency or fellowship <laughs> if, if need be. So I want to shift gears. Um, I've been reading Every Patient Tells a Story, and, and I know it's an older book. Um, it's about 10 years old now, um, but it's it's really provides it to me a very rich framing, right, around, um, you know, for, in my experience, just what what connects it to diagnosis, right? It's 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 the story around it that make that that I just find so fascinating, and so um, you know, oftentimes we can maybe rely, I think you called out, right, too heavily on technology in medicine, right? Um, classic tools such as good listening skills, um, physical examination, are critical to making a correct diagnosis, right? I think you even reported. At one point, 70 to 90% of medical diagnoses could be made on the basis of a patient's story alone, which I thought was remarkable. Um, now, that book came out in, I think it was 2009, right? Uh, roughly Somewhere, 2009, yeah. 2010. Um, what's changed in the last 10 years, right? In that, in the tech- we have a lot more technology. Yeah. <laughs> right, but, but, how, but how has that impacted diagnosis? You know, I just did a, I just did a column uh, with somebody who with the doctor who had created a, a different way of imaging parts of the body that mm. we don't talk about very often, mm. the lymph system. Mm. And he said something that I thought was incredibly profound. He said, every new test discovers new diseases. Mm. And mm. so I think that's totally true. So the more tech, I, you know, I'm not against technology. I think technology is incredibly important. Um, and it lets us see new diseases. But it doesn't do the work for us. You know, you can't test, don't think. Mm. Um, and f- far too often, um, when people come seeking medical attention, we, what I call, shoot them in the face with the diagnostic shotgun. Mm. You know, yeah. and that is not helpful. Yeah. That is not helpful. You know, every, every test is a question. And... Every test has the possibility of being wrong. Yeah, it's true. And when you send off tests that are not necessary, then you could get some wrong answers that are going to waste your time and send you in the wrong direction and could hurt the patient. So I try to get my doctors to focus on tests that will take them somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and so whenever one of my residents suggests a test, I say, well, what do you expect the answer to be? Mm. Because that's going to really, you know, if they go, oh, I don't know, well, then why are you ordering it, right? Right, right. <laughs> right, so if it's, possible, if it's positive, what are you going to do about it if it's negative? I mean, every test has to be considered because a wrong answer can cost you so much. Mm. You know, it can can send you in a completely wrong direction and Mm. waste time and maybe injure somebody or miss something and they'll die. You know, I mean, one of the um, statistics that I used in my TED Talk came Mm. from a guy at Hopkins. Mm. 90,000 people die in the hospitals in the United States every year because of diagnoses that are missed or are wrong. Mm. So that's, I assure you, Every one of those patients was tested to a fairly well. Yep. 
Yep. You know, yep. so testing is not going to get us the answer necessarily. Mm. It has to be the thoughtful use of technology, the thoughtful use of testing. Hmm. And uh, this is a, this is going to sound like maybe a strange question because I, I agree ninety thousand is way too many, right? But what's like what would we expect if 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 we were doing diagnosis right, right systemically, like that we had the right approach, like at a at scale? Um, you know, is zero achievable? Not real, not realistic. Like, what what do you, what do you feel like would be achievable? I don't know. Okay. You know, I have to say I don't know. But using our brains and the technology that we have now, mm-hmm. we are not going to get to the point where we can look at something and be right 100% of the time. Hmm. Our bodies have this very limited spectrum of ways to exhibit distress, Hmm. right? You know, I mean, my last book, Diagnosis, um, it was divided up based on people's chief concern. Right. So it was like everybody whose first symptom was chest pain or shortness of breath or loss of consciousness. And... There were no two diseases that were the same in any of those things Hmm. on purpose Hmm. Uh, because we have this very limited spectrum of symptoms, but the universe of diseases is huge. I mean, Hmm. one of the analogies I use is like the the alphabet, Hmm. 26 letters, you know, millions of words. So Hmm. we have these very limited number of symptoms. And, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of diseases. Hmm. So using, and we're looking at it from the outside, Hmm. right? We can't Hmm. just pop the hood and check out the engine. Hmm. That doesn't happen now. Right. Might, but not now. And so we have to go through what's most likely and then work our way to the periphery. Hmm. And sometimes the patient's going to die before we get to the right answer. Hmm. Yep. I think that's inevitable. Yep. I don't want it to be inevitable. Yep. I don't want that to happen. Hmm. But I do think that given where we are now, so everybody thinks that medicine is old as Hippocrates. Oh, yep. sure. There yep. are people who have been doctors since before Hippocrates. But real medicine that helps us make diagnoses and hmm. answer questions, hmm. that was yesterday. Hmm. Yep. You know, I mean, yep. medicine is young. Yep. There's so much we don't know. And until we have, you know, Bones McCoy's tricorder, hmm. we're going to miss diagnoses. And, it'll, and it will be sad. Hmm. I'll be sad. We'll yeah. all, we're all sad. Yeah. But it's inevitable. Okay. Um, I want to offer an example of just something I've been thinking about because... Um, this link between a test and causality and treatment, right, as a, as a means you, to, to diagnosis as opposed to the thinking process. Um, we've been doing a lot of work with a couple of clients around, you know, cell and gene therapies. And the hope for these, as I'm sure you know, is that maybe we have durable treatments or cures for, for some conditions that maybe before didn't even have treatments available to them. Um, for some of that, it seems like the diagnostic pathway might just be do the genetic test, you know, do the treatment, and, and then you have the, the result, right, the impact. Is this era of medicine, is it going to be different? Like, what does that availability or that recognition of, of both causality of disease to a specific genetic error and the, and the ability to treat that, does that impact the diagnostic, like, 
decision pathways, the way that, that, that physicians' brains should or would work in that instance. Well, of course, most of the genetic things we can't treat yet. Right. right. Someday, perhaps, we will. Um, I don't know. I mean, we still don't know what most of the gobbledygook in our DNA means. Yeah. So when people mm-hmm. get their genes done, yeah. think about, you know, like getting your eyes done. You yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, when yeah. they get their genes done, like most of that information isn't useful to anybody right now. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, even if you see, like we don't even know what normal really is for most of this, you know, I mean. Hmm. So uh, I just saw... In one of the comments, I, I'm addicted to the comments in my columns. Hmm. So one of the comments said, you know, my daughter and I got tested for gluten intolerance. We don't have celiac disease. We have gluten intolerance genetically. And I wasn't going to say anything. But one of my readers, bless his heart, goes, you know there's no test for that, right? <laughs> 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 Yeah. So, I mean, it's an area of huge exploration and real excitement. Yep. But now it's sort of like the last resort because so much of it is like, huh, interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great point. Um, this has been really wonderful. I want to be mindful of your time and just be, be respectful. Um, and so just thank you very much for, for, for speaking with us about this. This has been really fantastic. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. EPAM Continuum integrates business, design, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Lisa Sanders and Jonathan Swersey for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. I'm undiagnosable. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.